In case you hadn't noticed, the world is a mess. We had an awful reminder of that this Thursday in Roseburg, Oregon. And nothing has the power to save but the name of Jesus. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning and for the next three weeks of REACH. But it's not just about the nations, it's also about you today because I realize that if truth were to be told, some of you sitting in the pews today would say, you know what, my life is a mess today as well. And our text for all of REACH is Psalm 65.5, that God, particularly in His Son Jesus, is the hope of all of the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. And that includes us sitting here today. So I trust that God is going to bring a ray of hope to you in whatever you're facing today. You know, we do a cycle of spotlight events here at College Park Church. In March, we have Think, we do theology. In April, we have Serve, where we go into our communities and serve. And then in August, we have Live, where we experience community in fresh ways. And in September, we, have, we ignite a passion in our worship. And then we save the best spotlight event for last. <laughs> and that is Reach. It's all a part of church. It's all a part of being a follower of Jesus. But if all we do is learn and work in our neighborhoods and live together in community and worship God, we have not done enough. All of that is to build and to prepare us to take the hope of Christ to the nations. When we have within us, by the Spirit of God, a passion ignited to follow Jesus, we are going to follow him wherever he goes, even to the ends of the earth. So our theme is hope, and I want you to think about that for a few minutes this morning. How would you define hope? Is it an emotion? Is it a belief? Is it a desire? What specifically is hope? And as I've thought about it, I think hope is a, it's the intersection of our hearts and our minds. Our hearts want something to happen, but our minds serve as a reality check to tell us whether that actually might happen or not. For instance, last Sunday afternoon, I wonder how much hope you had when there were 12 minutes and 20 seconds left in the game against the Titans. We were down 27 to 14, and we had the ball on our two-yard line. And where was your hope at that point in time? Some of you may have been hoping that your husbands would turn the TV off. But those of us who are sports fans, I, I found myself having pretty much lost hope at that point in time. Because my mind said, luck has had a bad year so far. We haven't been moving the ball all day and there's no way from the two yard line we're going to be able to score and score again before time runs out. My hope was gone. Where is hope based? Just the idea of hope has a bad rap in our cynical world, and let me give you a few quotations about hope. Hope is a very thin diet. Hope is tomorrow's veneer over today's disappointment. Hope is the denial of reality. Alfred Nobel said, hope is nature's veil for hiding truth's nakedness. And then Benjamin Franklin, like he was wont to do, summed it up this way. He that lives upon hope will die fasting. 
You see, because all of those definitions assume that hope is, is not much more than the power of positive thinking. And that's how Webster defines hope, the feeling of wanting something to happen and thinking that it could. But biblical hope is different than that because the quality or the reality of our hope base, is based on what it is depending upon, right? That's why the author of Proverbs, Solomon, said the hope of the fool comes to nothing. You can hope in the wrong things and nothing is going to happen because you've trusted in the wrong things. But hope for us as Christians, I, I've kind of summarized it this way. It's a desire plus a confidence based on the character of God. And when we know who he is and what he has promised to do for his people, hope rises in us. In fact, the Hebrew word used in, in Psalm 65, 5 is one of five different Hebrew words for hope. The other four all mean to wait for God, and that's part of the process of hope. But this particular word means to have a conviction, an assurance, a confidence that something is going to happen. All the ends of the earth can have confidence that God will be there to save them. Now let me ask, who needs hope? Well, I think the answer to that is quite simple, the, the hopeless. Colts fans. <laughs> or to get more serious, perhaps you're unemployed today. Maybe you're struggling with cancer or some challenging illness. Maybe you're a single who's hoping that you'll get married. Or maybe you're a married who's hoping that your marriage will get better. You've got broken relationships. If you are hopeless, you need hope. And I know, as I said earlier, I think there are a lot of troubles in this room right now. In fact, I've often thought if we were to add them all up, what a huge pile of pain there would be. You are facing challenging circumstances. But, but today I want us to go bigger than that. Why? Because the Word of God does. David in Psalm 65, 5 was not just looking at his problems. He was looking at the hope that he had found in God and he was realizing that that is the answer for all of the world. And for many of us, because we live in the most blessed country on the face of the earth, our problems pale in significance compared to much of the rest of the world. You know, many people in the world don't even know where their next meal is going to come from. Do you know there are 10 million Syrians that do not live in the homes that they lived in just four years ago? You've seen it on the news. In fact, we have somebody from the Middle East, a friend of mine from Lebanon, who is here this morning, and I thought it would be better for you to hear from him than from me about the hopelessness that is in our world today and the hope that can come through Christ. Camille Melke is the founder and director of Heart for Lebanon. This is a ministry that we're going to help with our Christmas offering. In addition, and we're going to give you more information about this next month, we're also going to be helping another war-torn area of the world in Ukraine. But since Camille was in town, I, I thought it would be great if he could come and share with us some of the challenges of ministry and life in the Middle East. So would you welcome with me to College Park Church this morning, Camille Melke with Heart for Lebanon. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Good morning, and thank you for this wonderful opportunity to be here with you today. Nate began his sermon by saying the world is in a mess. 
and definitely the Middle East is in a total mess. And there's this desperate search for hope. You see, in early 2011, millions of people throughout the Arab world took it to the streets, young and old, educated and not married and single. Everyone took it to the streets demanding to be heard and hoping for democracy and for equal opportunities to prevail. Regardless of their faith and ethnic background, thousands of people demonstrated in Damascus, Syria, in Cairo, Egypt, in Tripoli, Libya, and in other countries in the Arab world. These peaceful demonstrations were referred to by the media as the Arab Spring. The world was watching. Hope was in the horizon. A sweeping change was expected. The hope for a better future was blooming. But unfortunately, that desperate search for hope was quickly shattered. Four and a half years later, the images that we have seen of peaceful demonstrations have been replaced with pictures of countries in total chaos. Civil and regional wars have erupted in most of the Arab world. What once was considered as the Arab Spring, a beacon of hope, is now looked at as one of the most devastating crises in recent history. If we take a closer look at Iraq today, we realize that uh, the ethnic and religious hatred is at its worst. Death and destruction is becoming an everyday reality. Minorities such as the Yazidis and as the Christian Eastern Church are the main target of ethnic cleansing. Since June 2014, more than two million people in Iraq have been forced out of their homes. 426,000 of them have fled the country of Iraq to neighboring countries such as Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey. And those are only the numbers that we are accounting for since the rise of ISIS in June 2014. We're not talking about the millions that have been displaced and the hundreds of thousands have been killed in Iraq in the last 10 years. Syria is even in a worse situation. The United Nations today considers Syria as the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. 220,000 people have been killed in the last four years of conflict in Syria. Worse than that, hundreds of thousands of people are unaccounted for. They've either been abducted, imprisoned, or killed. Their whereabouts, their burial sites, is unknown. 7.6 million people are internally displaced in Syria today. These are individuals who have lost their homes, are living still within the boundaries of their country, but they are in refugee tent settlements. An additional four million Syrians fled the country of Syria to Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Turkey, and Egypt. You add those two numbers together and you realize that more than half of the Syrian population has been directly affected by the war in that country. And then you have that little tiny country called Lebanon. 
This beautiful country on the Mediterranean coast today is considered as the largest per capita host of refugees worldwide. Today, Lebanon has more refugees per capita than any country in the world. A nation that is equally divided into three religious groups, the Sunni Muslims, the Shia Muslims, and the Christians, is also equally divided with and against the regime in Syria. The religious war between the Shia and the Sunni Muslims have sharply affected our country, and it has significantly raised the political tension. Lebanon's fragile peace is at risk as more and more refugees from Syria and Iraq continue to cross our border. We've been just told by the United Nations that we could expect an additional one million Syrians to flee the country and come to Lebanon in 2016. If you add that with the uh, residing Syrian and Palestinian refugees in our population, you can know that one of every three people that walk in the country of Lebanon is a refugee from a neighboring nation. Of the four million Syrian refugees, 1.1 million of them alone are living in the country of Lebanon. And these are just the figures of those who had the courage to register with the United Nations and estimate another half a million refugees from Syria are living in hiding and have chosen not to register with the United Nations. Again, Lebanon today is the largest host of refugees per capita worldwide. Everywhere you look, by the coast, in the mountains, and all over the Bekaa Valley, Lebanon is full of refugee tent settlements, a problem that has, been, has a great economic and environmental effects and impact on our nation. With this bleak picture, one stops and asks this question. What is the role of the church in the Middle East as a response to this devastating question and crisis? When hope is shattered and despair prevails, what's the role of the community of faith? In what seems to be a desperate state of hopelessness, should we duck, leave, immigrate, or are we called to stand up for peace, justice, and equality? Unfortunately, many of us in the past have chosen to immigrate. Today, there are more Lebanese living overseas than there are living in the country of Lebanon. Four to one. Four million in the country of Lebanon, 16 million all over the world. My family is a good example of that. I have all my three siblings uh, living in the United States, and my wife as well. She has all her siblings living in the United States. But if we, so if we look at the problem in the Middle East from a human perspective, if we put on our, our earthly lenses and read the news and watch all these uh, news broadcasts out of the Middle East, then we are willing to give up. But if we put on our God-given heavenly lenses, lenses from above, we realize that we are standing in front of God-sized opportunities to be the hand and feet of Jesus to
to the broken world we live in. Like never before, the people of the Middle East, the Muslim world around us is searching for truth in the midst of despair and for peace in the midst of hopelessness. Is the church ready to reach out? Friends, Christ is the answer. The church, the community of faith is God's agent of transformation. We are his messengers of eternal peace. A peace from above. A peace that no one can take away from us. There's this beautiful verse in Matthew 5, 9. As Jesus is preaching on the mount, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. The way I understand this verse is, this is our ultimate calling in life. If we choose to be called sons and daughters of the living God, if we want to be part of this God family, we have no choice but to be heralds of his peace. It's not a maybe... I have this gift or not, maybe I have this calling or not. Each and every one of us children of God are called to be heralds and messengers of his peace. And to be so in the Middle East and in order to help move people from despair to hope, from total hopelessness to hope in Christ and Christ alone, we need to learn how to address poverty that is created by wars and conflicts. We need to address poverty on all levels, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And addressing poverty has many shapes and forms. There are great ministries in the Middle East, wonderful church uh, uh, opportunities, people of faith that are reaching out in Jordan, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Egypt, that are being, as I said, the hand and feet of Jesus to a broken world. For us at Heart for Lebanon, Helping moving people from hopelessness to hope in Christ means providing food and basic hygiene supplies to 2,650 families every month. 2,100 families from Syria, from all faith groups, receive aid from Heart for Lebanon. An additional 550 Iraqi refugee families are being served every given month. It means we are providing blankets and warm clothing to families who have lost all their belongings, have crossed our borders literally with the clothes on their back, and now have to deal with the cold winter month. Yes, Lebanon is in the Middle East, and yesterday the temperature is 95 degrees. But right before I flew on Thursday, my wife took a coat and said, you might need that. This morning, I texted her, I said, thank you for the advice. But pretty soon, the mountainous uh, terrain of Lebanon will be full of snow and very cold, harsh nights that the refugees have to fight in thin tent settlements. At Heart for Lebanon, it also means offering health awareness training in every camp we serve, as well as regular medical and dental clinics. You see, our primary target, the primary people we serve, are those who are the most vulnerable Many of the individuals we serve are women who have lost their husbands in war and have seen their loved one abducted and killed. In the Bekaa Valley alone, Heart for Lebanon is sponsoring 13 refugee tent settlements in which more than 9,000 people live. And in partnership with uh, several local churches, additional families are cared for in Beirut and in the south of Lebanon. The refugees who come from Syria have very little to live on. As Nate said, they don't know where their next 
meal will come from. Their children are living in total despair. Unfortunately, they're the subject of radical indoctrination. They are being brainwashed and taught to hate and despise everyone that doesn't think like them, talk like them, believe like them. And recently, as we were preparing to launch our next uh, school year, we interviewed several of the new coming students, and we wanted to know what their hopes and aspiration is. And every student we talked to, every boy we talked to said, I want to be the next terrorist. I want to be the next fighter. I want to carry arms and fight the Syrian regime. I want to do this, and I want to do that. And I was looking at myself and saying, my goodness, the innocence of childhood has been robbed from those kids. Then we had this young little girl. She said, I want to grow up to be a doctor. And I say, great, finally somebody wants to do something good in life. But then she quickly said, so I can heal the terrorists and they can go back and fight again. You ask yourself, desperate people in the Middle East living in total hopelessness are being forced to believe that hatred and anger is the solution. And the opposite, our non-formal education programs, 300 refugee kids today are learning to be children. Again, they are studying in a safe environment. They are learning to read and write for the first time. They are enjoying Arabic, English, and math classes. They are also learning Bible-based character traits. Muslim kids are learning about Bible-based definition of forgiveness, acceptance, kindness, gentleness, and honesty. At every one of our three hope centers, at-risk children are given the opportunity to dream again, to laugh again, to play again. Children, first and foremost, are experiencing the love of Christ, and they are learning to love one another as well. Their innocence is being restored. And for those who cannot attend our schools, the Hope on Wheel team travels to every camp settlement providing fun and educational activities. Through drama and sketches, kids at the camps are learning about heroes from the Bible. They are also learning hymns and Bible verses. These are Muslim children. Restoring hope, friends, is a process. It's a long journey. It takes time, and it, is an in, it needs an intentional effort. Our visiting teams, our staff, spend long hours listening to the heartbreaking stories of every refugee family we serve. Hours are spent sipping on tea and coffee, hearing about the horrifying experiences of our refugee friends, crying with them, celebrating that they're still alive, and looking at every opportunity to share our testimony and an encouraging message from Scripture. Here, let me remind you that we, the uh, Lebanese community, have gone through 19 years of civil war. So each and every one of us has these vivid memories of how God's grace has protected us, how the community of faith worldwide has reached to us and cared for us when we were in similar dire situations. 
I can spend a long time this morning telling you about my own testimony and my own story about God's grace and protection. I can tell you that my wife and I were sniped at, we were rushing for our own safety, for our own survival on our wedding day. I can tell you about many times that we were abducted at gunpoint and we were standing face to face looking at each other without words to be said, thinking this is our last day on this earth. I can tell you I have a beautiful daughter who's doing her master's studies at IU, not too far from here, who continues to struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder. The images of the car bomb that she was caught in the middle are so vivid in her mind. She's well physically, and we pray that she will be well emotionally as well. But these trusted relationships that were built through our visiting team efforts have opened today the door for many of the Syrian refugees and the Iraqi refugees to accept Christ as their personal savior. 12 Bible study groups were formed to help disciple the new believers. Women and men meet weekly in group to grow in their faith and to dive deeper in scripture. Hope is reborn. Hope is also reborn among children who are learning to pray. At risk, children whose innocence is restored are putting their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is their ultimate source of hope. Friends, at College Park Church, together we can work on restoring hope in the world. We work side by side as we move people from despair, from total hopelessness, and hope in Christ and Christ alone. Thank you, and God bless you all. Thank you, Camille, for sharing that. Thank you for your ministry, your sacrifice, and we are looking forward to being a part of what God is doing through Heart for Lebanon with our Christmas offering this year. If you're a good college parker, you're ready for something about now. You want an answer from the Bible for the problems of the world, and we're going to find that in Psalm 65. So would you take your Bibles and turn to our text for this morning? As we do that, I want us to think again about this question, where do you get hope from? You get it from the goat. Anybody know what a goat is, capital G-O-A-T? That stands in certain circles for the greatest of all time. Muhammad Ali called himself the greatest boxer, and he may well have been. Michael Jordan has been anointed the goat of basketball, and now LeBron James is challenging him for that title. We wonder who the goat of football is. Who's the greatest quarterback ever? And that sparks some interesting debates among sports fans. But I want to tell you this morning something that you know, but I want to remind you of it. There is absolutely no debate whatsoever about who the goat of the universe is. It is the God of the Bible in his three persons. And how do we know that? 
There is no other God, no other idol, no other ideology that can hold a candle to our God. That is why he is the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. If he was just a hope, we wouldn't have to be involved in global missions. People could find whatever solutions they wanted. But Jesus is the only hope because he alone is the greatest of all time in the universe. Is that just smack talk? How do I know that? Well, I'd like you to bring your champion up, and I would like to compare him with my champion, the God of the Bible, and we'll see who wins. What I'd like to do in the next few moments is to lace him up and compare our God with the gods of the nations and see why it is that he alone is the only hope of the world. And we're going to do that through the lens of Psalm 65 this morning. So what I want to do very simply is just to see God in Psalm 65, and when you see him in his towering majesty and his uniqueness and his unforgettable love, you are going to understand in a fresh way, I hope, why he is the only hope of all the ends of the earth. There are four reasons in our texts why he is the hope of the world. First, he is strong. His power brings peace. Verses 5 to 8. Psalm 65, 5, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. What awesome deeds was David thinking about here? Probably the great deliverance that he provided for his people out of the land of Egypt. They were in bondage. God worked 10 miracles that had never been seen before. And God demonstrated his power and his people were released and that news became known throughout all the nations of the earth that there is a strong, mighty God in Israel whose likes have never been seen on the face of the earth. O oh God of our salvation, he delivers us through his power. And how does he do it? Verse 6, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded or clothed with might. Have you ever been to the Rocky Mountains? You know, just to, to gaze upon range after range of snow-covered mountains, to think of the magnificence of them and the terror of being on them if you were there. And yet, the Rocky Mountains pale in significance compared to the Himalaya Mountains of Central Asia. And where did these mountains come from? The text says God made them. He made them. <laughs> He just spoke, and all of those mountains came into being just like that. And now Isaiah tells us he takes the mountains and he weighs them on his scale. He plays with them like his little toys. This is the powerful God of the Bible. And the point is this. Do you think you have big problems? Are your problems bigger than the mountains of the world? Well, if they're not, then you can hope in God because he's the one that made them. Verse 7, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Probably not many of us have been at sea during a storm, but you might have watched the movie, The Perfect Storm. And can you just picture yourself there with these huge crashing waves out in the middle of the ocean? You feel so tiny and so helpless because of the roaring of the seas is going to sink you and destroy your life. What does our God do to the seas? It says he stills their roaring. And did he ever do that? Yes, he did. Because God come down to earth was once with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee and the storm had come up and the boat was about to sink. They were in danger for their lives. And Jesus spoke. 
He rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and the scripture says there was a calm. See my friends, because God is powerful, because he is strong, he brings peace into our world. Are your problems rougher than a raging sea today? If not, take hope in God who stills the seas. But that's not all. Look at the end of verse 7, who stills the tumult of the peoples. You see, God controls not only inanimate nature, he controls the most powerful and destructive force in the world today, and that is human beings. That's what our brother Camille has been talking to us about. The tumult of the nations, as Muslims among themselves between Sunni and Shia, as Muslims and Christians, as ISIS comes in, all we read about in the Middle East, and for that matter in parts of Africa and Asia as well, is tumult of the nations. And what does our God do? It says in verse seven, he stills the tumult of the peoples. God has done that throughout history. He has quieted wars. He has provided peace by his strength because he is strong. And you might be wondering in your hearts, why doesn't he do that more often? And why doesn't he do it right now? And why doesn't he do it forever? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that. The answer is, I guess, that he's God and he determines the timetable. But our text says he holds that power, he is that strong, that he can bring down one king and raise up another. He can bring peace anytime he wants. And friends, one day he is going to come and bring peace forever and ever. I think David was looking forward to that day that Revelation talks about when Jesus will come again and take his great power and begin to reign. He will destroy the destroyers of the earth and reward his servants, the prophets and saints, and there will be peace forevermore, Revelation chapter 11. This is the God whom we believe in and whom, who is our hope. That is why Jesus is our blessed hope, Paul says in Titus. And we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace who will come back and still all the tumult of the nations by his great power. And all in his temple will cry glory to God. This is why, my friends, we hope in God. For he is strong and his power brings peace. Maybe you're saying, I need a little drop of that today in my life. Ask him for it. He would be delighted to exercise his power on your behalf. Call out to him and watch his power bring peace into your life. The second reason we hope in God is that he is forgiving. His pardon brings purity. Verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. You see, we have a deeper problem than what's going on around us. And Pastor Mark keeps reminding us, doesn't he, that our greatest problem is within ourselves. Why is that? It is because we have sinned. We have violated God's laws. We've said we're not going to obey you and follow you any longer. And what does the Bible say happens to people who do that? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. The Bible says you will reap what you sow. 
and in our sin when we left God, they, our, our sin separated us from God and left our hope behind and we have become hopeless in this world. And David himself had experienced that when he sinned against God with Bathsheba. He wrote in Psalm 51 that God, you have broken my bones, that's what it feels like. He said in Psalm 32, this has become like my, my bones are burning up inside me and I am weakened as in the heat of summer, I'm sapped of all my strength because he was feeling the death that comes whenever we sin. And in our text this morning, he describes it as our sins overwhelming us. They are a burden that, that we cannot get out from under. And what does our great God do when he sees us overwhelmed in our transgressions? The text says, you atone for our iniquities. My friends, what did God do? Well, David was looking, I think, to the sacrificial system that had been installed for Old Testament Jews, and particularly to the Day of Atonement, when one goat was killed bearing the sins of the nation, and another goat was released into the desert as a symbol of their sins being removed as far away as the east is from the west. And yet David was looking beyond that sacrificial system, through it to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the Lamb of God, because he knew that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, but the precious blood of Christ can redeem us from our sins. That's why Jesus came into the world, to do away with sin by the offering of his body once for all. That is how our great God has atoned for our transgressions by sending his son to die in our place. And when that happens, David understood the joy that comes with purity. He said, feeling the guilt of his sin, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. My friends, we have a God who pardons and his pardon brings purity into our lives again. Who is a pardoning God like you, Micah says? There is no one in all of the universe that would even think about doing something like that. And yet our God withholds his wrath and he throws our iniquities, he hurls them into the depth of the sea as his son pays the penalty for them and we are freed and released from them and made pure and holy again in his sight. That is why we hope in God. He knew our greatest need and he dealt with it in his son and he restored us into a relationship with him. Is that your need today? Is your life messed up because of your own sin? Are you overwhelmed by your transgressions? There is hope in God through his son Jesus. There will be people at the front after the service is over. We would love to talk to you more about that if that's where you are today. That's what our Syrian friends need. They need to have their sins forgiven because their sins have overwhelmed them and they're hearing the message of atonement through Christ through the ministry of Heart for Lebanon. There's a third reason why we hope in God and that is that he is good. His presence brings pleasure, verse four. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. You see, God's plan for his people was not just to show his strength in saving them from their difficulties, nor was it just to wash them clean from their sins. It was to restore them to a relationship with him. 
a relationship that would bring them delight and joy and pleasure. How does he do that? Verse four is packed with theology. He says at the beginning, blessed is the one you choose and bring near. This is a matter of God's sovereign choice. And we don't have time to unpack all of that, but I'm glad Pastor Mark did that a few months ago when we were in Romans chapter nine. God has chosen some, and what does he do with those that he chooses? He brings them near. To do what? To dwell in your courts. Now courts to us don't sound like a warm and fuzzy place that we would want to be. But for the Old Testament Jew, their entire life revolved around the courts of the temple, and why was that? Because that's where their God lived. And when they wanted to get close to God, they went into the courts of the temple and they could draw near to this wonderful being who was the God of the universe, their own God. That's why the psalmist said, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. It's why in Psalm 84, the psalmist said, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And that's why he goes on to say, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Why? Because in the courts of God, in his presence, we see him and he is spectacularly beautiful. And if you do not this morning delight in God above all else, The reason is that you have not yet seen God. And that's what we're trying to do in our passage this morning. By faith, through words, we're trying to see this glorious, majestic, beautiful being who is the God of the universe. Now let me try to help you understand that if I can. If, for instance, Angelina Jolie were to walk on stage this morning, would anybody be looking at me anymore? No, you're... Our eyes are drawn to beauty. You don't have to tell anybody to look at something beautiful. Or maybe a safer illustration. Um, A couple years ago, I had the chance to be in Northeast India, in the town of Darjeeling, and I went up with a friend to this mountain town, and we stayed in a cold hotel, and we got up at four in the morning and bundled and went out with several hundred other people to Tiger Point. And why did we do that? Because as we looked across in the darkness, across the valley, we saw the third highest mountain peak in the world, Kachanjunga. And we had gone there because we wanted to see the sun rise and cast a pink glow upon this magnificent mountain. And we were all there because it was a clear day and you could see as far as possible. And I'm telling you, when the sun rose and when that snow-covered peak turned pink in all of its majesty, there was not an eye that was looking anywhere else among all hundreds of us tourists there. Because in front of our eyes was a majesty, a power, a beauty that we had never seen with these eyes before and we were drawn into it. And God combines all of that majesty and power and beauty in himself along with unfailing love for us, his creatures. He is the most beautiful, desirable person and being in all of the universe. And David says, we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house. When you bring us into fellowship with you, our hearts are filled with joy. You make known to me the path of life, he said. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures 
at your right hand. We are drawn to God by his grace. We dwell with him and we delight in his beauty. And that's why we hope in him, because he is good. And the excellence of his house, of his courts, attracts us for all of eternity. And I wonder this morning if your life is empty. Are you satisfied with lesser visions, lesser pleasures? God wants to fill you with himself, to invite you into his courts so that you can be satisfied with the goodness of his house. And that's why we hope in him. There's a fourth reason that we don't have time to look at. It's the last five verses. The fourth reason we hope in God is that he is kind. His provision brings plenty. And you can read those this afternoon. But I have two final questions that we need to consider this morning. One is, who is this God for? I mean, if you think about it, this is an unbelievable God. You couldn't make this stuff up. Look at the gods of the nations and who they worship. Hindus have 33 million gods that they worship, each with a different specialty, and many of them are destructive. Islam's God is distant and removed and inaccessible and even capricious in how he deals with people. You can't ever know for sure what he's going to do. Buddhism says, look within yourself and extinguish your desires, and that will be the answer to all of life's problems. Thanks a lot for that. And animism says you need to be afraid of the spirits that are out there, the evil spirits as well as your ancestors who have gone before you, and you have to appease them with sacrifices, and you have to seek their blessing by giving them things. And we know, of course, that these gods are no gods at all. But what I want you to understand this morning is, do you realize that people really believe this stuff? Sometimes you have to travel to see that. I was in Southeast Asia just a couple of months ago and uh, was visiting in Burma and Cambodia and just took a couple of pictures to remind you that there are not thousands, there are millions of people around the world who believe this stuff about other gods. This is the Shwedagon Pagoda in Yangon, Burma. People, intelligent, healthy, wealthy people who are bowing down before idols of stone. Here's a man meditating and saying his prayers, hoping that he will get some benefit from God. People literally bowing down before idols of stone and metal. And then these monks, there's a, there's a big idol of Buddha just across there lying down and they're bowing down and worshiping before him. And when we see those pictures, our hearts should break. Where does it leave these people? It leaves them hopeless because they are without God in the world. This year at Ignite, we had a painting show. A number of you artists drew things for that, and I appreciated that because I'm more of a linear thinker. But Tim Aker drew this picture for Ignite, and to me, it summarizes Psalm 65 so well. Do you see the peoples of the nations and look in their eyes? They are all seeking something in their religion, in their false God that leaves them empty. And it is the eye of Jesus that looks at them all and weeps in compassion. You see, where do we find the answer to life's problems? It is only in Jesus. The power is in Jesus because he said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The pardon is because of Jesus, because he is the Lamb of God who carried our sins away. The presence is Jesus himself in the form of his spirit who has come to live in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And the provisions are from Jesus, our great shepherd. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become our high priest forever. The hope of the world is... Jesus. And did you notice the three places in this psalm where all of the nations are mentioned? Verse 2, O you who hear prayers, to you shall all flesh come. Verse 5, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. And verse 8, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. Do you think David didn't have any problems as the king of Israel? Yes, he did. But God had given him a global vision that realized that what he was experiencing in God should flow through him to the ends of the earth. And that's why he wanted them to hear of the true God. And that brings me to my final question. How are they going to hear? Those people you saw pictures of don't know any better. They've never heard of the hope of the Bible. There is only one way that they're going to hear, and that is, and get this, the hope filled must take the hope to the hopeless. That's God's method. When he fills you with hope, when you have a passion to follow Jesus and be filled up with him, then he wants you to take that hope to people that are still hopeless. And that includes, it begins in your own neighborhood and your own family. It spreads to our city, but it must not stop there. It needs to go to the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. And you might say, well, how can I do that from where I live? That's what REACH is all about. And over the next two weeks, we want to help you answer this simple question. How can my life take the hope of Jesus and take it to the ends of the earth? If you haven't seen it yet, grab a REACH 15 brochure on your way out at the kiosks. Look at the things that we have planned for the next two weeks and be a part of it and find the answer to that question for you. And Part of it may be for you to take the perspectives course that we're offering here at College Park Church starting in January where you can learn more specifics about what it means to take the hope of Jesus to the ends of the earth. You see, because the true goat of the universe is actually the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. There is no one like him in power, in pardon, in presence, and in provision. And there is a world out there that stretches to the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas that is in desperate need of that hope.